I'm Robin Williams. I do things on the ABC radio and television. However, this uh, session is going to be all about Mars, as you probably know. <laughs> is colonizing Mars the next giant leap for humanity, or is it a waste of time and money? Do humans need to be a multi-planet species to avoid extinction, as argued by Elon Musk? Musk, who, of course, was in the news today. What have humans and the blue planet got to gain in the short term by practicing and preparing to inhabit the red planet? Who better to ask than two of our favorite Martians, Australia's Mars One candidate, Josh Richards, and Carmel Johnson, crew commander of a year-long Mars simulation mission. Would you welcome them both? First, details, background for Carmel Johnston, who comes from the USA. She's recently finished serving as the commander of the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, which is a collaboration between the University of Hawaii and NASA, where she and five other people lived in complete isolation for an entire year. She has a Master's of Science in Land Resources and Environmental Sciences from Montana State University, and she was able to apply her passion for science and sustainable living to grow fresh vegetables for the crew. I wonder what she used as fertilizer. <laughs> now that she's out of the dome, she is taking full advantage of being able to run, hike, swim, and play outside in her hometown in Montana. What did you use as fertilizer? That's a secret. We'll talk about it later. Oh, <laughs> a secret. A secret for the next few minutes. Yeah. All right, fine. And Josh Richards, physicist, explosive engineer, soldier, comedian, astronaut. In the last decade, he's picked up booby traps with the Australian Army, slogged through mud with British commandos, been science advisor to the richest artist in the world, and performed comedy wearing a giant koala suit to confused audiences around the world. He found his true calling in 2012 when he discovered the Mars One project, and he was selected from over 200,000 applicants. He's currently one of 100 astronaut candidate shortlisted to leave Earth forever to colonize Mars in 2027. Josh, who is the richest artist in the world? I worked as the science advisor for Damien Hirst. For Damien Hirst? Yeah. Oh, gosh. It was an experience. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't end up in the tank with the shark, did No, you? no. I was primarily working on how to breed butterflies. Excellent. Uh, yeah, which was yeah. nice. Have you really had about 16 lifetimes to fit in all those I careers? like to call it career ADD, where you just bounce around and you're like, oh, try this, and then try that, and just can't make your mind up. I can imagine. <laughs> Carmel, you've been on television and radio talking about your experience. Um, you were on last night again. It was quite wonderful. I, I won't duplicate all those questions, but um, one year, that's an awful long time to be in a tent with all those guys. Yeah, so living for a year in isolation, specifically in that environment in Hawaii, is one of the only places you can actually have that experience. And ideally, you would go for longer. You would go for the entire duration of a mission to Mars and back. But we were working on building up from four months to eight months, which were the missions before me, and then we were a full year, and now the missions after us will go back to eight months for each one. What was it like? It was pretty crazy. Um, I mean, yeah, there's just so much to talk about about it. Um, but, you know, if I were doing it a week, and I'd be going bonkers. Yeah, we had so much stuff to do that we didn't really have time to go crazy and or be bored. So we were doing research projects. We had to exercise. We had to cook all of our own food. We had to go outside in spacesuits and explore the landscape around us. And then we had to fix things. And so we were just always doing something all the time. Yeah, I'm asking personal questions because that's one of the tests to see whether human beings can stand up. And in fact, they did this in Antarctica on a few occasions and uh, they had experiments to see whether people could go to Antarctica or whether being cooped up for all that oh. time would send them a bit strange. But what about being on your own? Can you be on your own? One of those matters of solitude that all of us need. Yeah, I, I mean, I personally like being kind of removed from everybody else and... If I could just live in the woods in a cabin for the rest of my life, I'd be pretty happy. 
so I'm probably special in that way. But for the most part, all of us were really engaged and interested in the project, and we were there specifically for the purpose of doing that research. And so even if we missed things at home or we you know, wanted to do other things at that time, we knew that our place in the moment was to be right there and to do what we were told to do for by the mission support. Well, it's a serious question because if you're on that rocket to Mars and you're not suited... <laughs> yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> have they Everyone ever found trouble. that one or two people are not suited and uh, they have to be jettisoned? Um, well, are you like specifically for our mission, ours was just to find out what happens socially and psychologically to the, the crew while you're cooped up in isolation. And so in that, they find out about different personalities and they find out which kinds of people are better suited than others. So once that information is aggregated from all the missions, then they're going to give a report to NASA and NASA will use that information to help select their future crews. Um, but in the meantime, I'm sure they've learned tons from all the astronauts that have come before, the current ones, as to which kinds of personalities you would like or, or not like. <laughs> and when you went out with walkabout, so you had to put that uh, spacesuit on and it took about an hour. And it, was it at all claustrophobic? Because I couldn't put one on. You know, it's, it's too enclosing. Yeah, it was pretty tight. It was definitely sweaty and sticky the whole time, which is good, though, because when you decide to take it off, it just slides right off of you rather than kind of <laughs> clinging to you. So it's actually much quicker to take it off than to put it on, depending on how warm it's been outside. Um, it is claustrophobic. You have a fan that is circulating all the air throughout your system. I call it the sensory deprivator because you can't see very well. You can't hear anything other than your fans. You can't smell anything other than yourself. You can't taste anything other than the air that's in there. And then... The other touching, you have um, gloves on, so you can't, even though you can pick up rocks, you can touch the surface, you can't, actually don't feel it with your hands, and so you, you lose all of your senses, essentially, when you're in a suit. Josh, have you tried some of that? Uh, no, I have not. I've, <laughs> I've spent a fair bit of time diving, uh, which is a similar sort of experience, especially when you're in a dry suit and you're kind of cut off from everything, and you do have that sensory deprivation experience. But uh, no, I haven't dressed up in. <laughs> I suppose if I suits. asked you if you had any qualms, you wouldn't be able to say so because you'd d disqualify yourself. Well, and even if I did, it's a lot of it is about overcoming fear. Um, Chris Hadfield, quite famously, is uh, is scared of heights. Um, the former commander of the International Space Station is scared of heights, and that's something yeah. you overcome. So, but I'm pretty comfortable in something like that. Have you met him? He's an amazing Canadian. I've seen him from a stage. It's about as close as I've gotten. I see, yes. Yeah. I've interviewed him a couple of times, and he's quite brilliant. It's quite interesting how some astronauts, despite being up there in space, when some interviewer comes along with a microphone, they get terribly nervous yeah. sometimes. I did that at Houston. But tell me, what sort of pre preparation have you had for what you put yourself in for? Which is Most of what we've been doing so far is about selecting people out. So it's less about kind of looking for people with specific skills. They've started to do that, but the real focus has been asking people, why are you signing up for this in the first place? What's your motivation? And do you have a sense of humour and can you get along with other people? Um, they can train you to do pretty much anything if you know how, if you can learn, but ultimately it comes down to personality. Um, you don't want to be stuck inside a capsule for seven months and then the rest of your life on Mars with a jerk. Is so it the rest of your life? That's what we're aiming for. Um, so the Mars One architecture is all about getting people to Mars and keeping them there. Uh, we're not designing a return vehicle. There currently aren't tech return vehicles that would actually bring people back um, that are being built. So we are just going there and we're going to stay. So for the rest of my life is definitely the goal. Well, <laughs> I know that uh, in the old days when people were coming to Australia in those small wooden boats, it was assumed that many of them would die on the way and certainly lots of them would never come back to Europe, which is where they were coming from mostly. So it, it's not an unusual thing to say you're going to go somewhere forever, is it? I mean, we're hoping to get there in one piece. We're hoping we don't die in the transit. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely a different mindset. A lot of people are so used to the idea that you go on holiday and you come back and you go and you can always be accessible. But go back 100, 150 years ago, and that was not the reality. This easy transport around the world is only something that we've kind of come to terms with in the last 30 years or so. So, yeah, it's returning to an older mindset of we will go somewhere and not come back. Now, that big question first, uh, Carmel and then Josh, uh, 
the question of an alternative planet. Do you think we really need one? Well, one of my motivators for why we should go to Mars is what we can learn from Mars. And uh, aside from your beliefs of whether we should colonize it or not, I believe that there are some really good lessons we can learn about Mars's life history. And the current theory right now is that Mars used to look a lot like Earth. And there, used, there possibly was life there. there. There was water there, and there still is. And so what about Mars's life history caused it to change and to be this inhospitable planet now? And are there lessons we can learn from there to help us better our lives here on Mars, or sorry, on Earth? And um, specifically, if we can live on Mars with the technology required to provide our own air, water, food, shelter, all that stuff, you know, if we ever get to the point where we have damaged Earth so much that we need that, that technology, we'll already have it in place. We'll already be able to use it here. And hopefully we don't get to that point in the first place. Yes, we're not telling people it's going to be a safety place to go if we stuff up here. No, it's hard to live there. Like, it's literally impossible to live there right now. So, Earth is a nice, beautiful place where we have life pretty easy already. We should not take it for granted. Same question to you, Earth's George. great. I mean, sure, I'm trying to leave it for good, but it's a pretty, pretty healthy place for humans to live. Um, I don't see it as an alternative. I see the idea of going to Mars as a great way to learn more about the planet that we're on, learning potentially about where life on this planet has come from, um, testing out technology that will make life on this better by achieving it on another planet. If something catastrophic happened on Earth, at the moment we've got all our eggs in one basket. It's a classic line from Elon Musk of everything's here on Earth. There would be some evidence that our species existed if there was something that wiped us out if we managed to get to Mars. And my real hope with it is not just about colonising Mars, it's that first stepping stone for then going exploring further out into the solar system. Go and visit Europa and go and visit the, the moons of, Ju of Saturn and all these sort of different places and start to really expand as a species. And what do you think, Josh, of uh, Elon Musk's statements about the need to go to Mars? I reckon it's great. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to get to Mars. Like, and if there's a way that we can work together to do that, um, a lot of people talk about a space race, about competing, trying to go in different sort of different places, go to the moon, go to Mars. At the end of the day, we're, we're sending people into space. Um, and the biggest thing that kind of comes out of it is not necessarily where you go, but the view back at Earth uh, in the process. One of the biggest things that came out of the Apollo 8 mission was that going picture, around the moon and getting the Earthrise image. And that really kick-started the modern vision of environmentalism that we have, that vision of this pale blue dot uh, hanging in the darkness. As that, Carl Sagan as said. As Carl Sagan said. Yeah, that pale blue dot. Going back to your um, vegetables, what could you grow and was it hard? We grew all sorts of different things. We had lettuce, kale, chard, peas, beans, tomatoes. Um, we tried our hand at strawberries. They didn't do so well. Um, pretty much any kind of leafy green grows really, really well. And then we had you know, an assortment of other vegetables going. Um, we tried a variety of different things. We, we had specific experiments that were geared towards whatever it is what we were, were researching at the time, whether that was soil treatments or light conditions. Um, different species in that. And then we also had all the vegetables that were growing just for fun and for our own benefit. So we had aquaponic systems we grew growing in um, just normal hydroponic systems, as well as normal soil and regolith from both outside and from a, 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 so a regolith that essentially is alike to the, the rock that's on Mars. And so it's mined in a place that the chemical spectrum of it is similar to Mars. So as close as you can get to Martian soil we were growing in. Right. Were you allowed to pee on your crops? Uh, we did not pee on them physically. We used urine that was already for another scientific purpose. We diluted it and then we used it as fertilizer for certain crops. It was like part of the experiment too. And it worked? It did, it worked great. <laughs> I mean, I have a picture that I showed to school kids of grass that was grown with urine without urine and the grass with urine is like three times as big as the other stuff. It's amazing. All that nitrogen. Yeah, all nitrogen, but you also are peeing out other things besides just nitrogen. You have all of the other nutrients you, your body isn't absorbing. So everything that the grass needs or the plants need, you're peeing out essentially. Would it be enough to live on for a while? I would say so. I mean, I have enough evidence right now to, to prove it, but 
Yeah, essentially recycling re and reclaiming nutrients. That's just urine. If you were to use your feces as well, that would be another great place to get a lot of nutrients, and you could incorporate that into the nutrient cycling process. Yeah, I went to a place in Arizona a few years ago where they've been practicing doing that for some time. Have you heard of that place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's going quite well. So yeah. uh, tomatoes, plenty of tomatoes growing like crazy. And uh, I think it's Tucson. Yeah, I think it's not quite as crazy as everybody thinks it is, but that's because I just did it, and it wasn't that big of a deal. People, like, well, most of the crew, they knew we were experimenting with urine. They didn't know which crops necessarily, and they ate them all just fine, and they're still alive, so nothing happened to them. What other experiments did you do? Um, we, so we had research that was being done to us, and then we had research that we were doing um, on our own that wasn't related to the social and the psychology of it. The psychology aspect is more focused on how we interact with each other, how our stress levels change over the course of a day as well as over the course of a year. Um, everything from how much we ate to what time we went to bed, how much we were exercising, like literally anything you can think of you would want to know about a human being while they were in this mission, they studied. Everything? I think so. I mean, we didn't take fecal samples, but we did urine samples. That's ah. pretty close. Uh, yeah. How many times have you been asked by journalists about sex? Every single time. Yeah. And not journalists as well, but yeah. It's like, for some reason, everybody thinks that we were just bored out of our mind and had nothing else to do. And I think all of us were like, I have no time to sleep, let alone do anything else for fun. Like, and then you meet people and you're like, yeah, I have to live with you after this. It's normal relationships, you can leave the person, you can go somewhere else, you can move to a different town. If you have to see that person every single day, that's really not a great idea. Josh, when you get there, have you thought about what you might do for the rest of your life? Primarily survive. That's what we're aiming for when we first get there. <laughs> Survival enough? Survival's a start. Um, ultimately, for the first crew, you're looking at just four people. So we're not going to be venturing out into the, into the sand dunes of Mars for those first two years or so. It will be primarily about making sure the life support system works, that we're growing food, that we're staying safe and healthy. Beyond that, as more people start to arrive, there's a new crew arriving every 26 months or so. As we start to have more people there, there'll be more redundancy and more options to start doing more experiments, explore further, all of that. But initially, it is just survival. And plan <coughs> plans for building, well, not, not, not just a, a big shed to live in, but something approaching a small village? So the actual design that we've got, the architecture at the moment, is based on capsules. Uh, so there's six capsules that land with the first crew. They are primarily life support systems. They're storing food. They're hooked up to generate power. And then there's two life units that live out the back of that that are considerably larger, and that's actually what we live inside of. The design of it is that as more capsules arrive, we keep connecting them up, and it becomes this kind of internal underground village uh, where everything's connected up. There are potential designs later on where we send much larger inflatables, say the size of this tent, where you might be able to grow a tree inside it or something like that, but the initial base units that we're looking at are almost like, like Lego. They kind of lock together um, and you just keep expanding as people keep sending stuff. And when you've got all that, will you have to keep your enclosure separate in terms of well, the escape of germs, the escape of substances that uh, may infect the landscape. So part of the benefit of sending people one way is that we don't back-contaminate. If we do find weird and wonderful things on Mars, we're not potentially sending them back. We're studying them on Mars. We get wiped out, but at least some awful virus doesn't make its way back to, Mar back to Earth or anything like that. Everything that we're working on will be... It, it's a bit like a ship. Uh, a lot of folks don't realise that ships have bulkheads built up inside it, so if you flood one particular section, if there's something goes wrong here, you can seal it off and you can protect everything else. Mm. And we'll have a similar approach when it comes to controlling contaminants, um, making sure that we don't contaminate the surface of Mars, because if we're going to be looking for life there, we don't want to bring bugs with us that then contaminate those sensitive areas as well. So it's a lot of quarantine control. What about evidence that there are bugs out there. I know there's evidence that there are org organic molecules. They're landing in meteorites all the time. But what about any evidence at all of microorganisms? 
I think evidence is difficult to come by at this point, primarily because we haven't tested for it effectively. A lot of the, the systems that we've sent on the rovers have been about geology. Um, they're looking for, for chlorates, they're looking for organic chemicals, all those sort of things. But a lot of them aren't necessarily testing for life. The last life sensor that I'm aware of um, were not on the void, the mariner probes. Uh, they had an experiment on there that was trying to test to see if there was some response and they weren't sure what the results were. But I, I know for a lot of the probes, um, when they were sent up, they weren't necessarily sent up with the intent of testing for life. They're like, oh, let's, let's find water, let's find all these other things. And so what the, a lot of the people involved with the, the rovers have you know, come to say is that if you were to take that same rover and put it in deserts in, around on Earth, where we know we can find life because we have researchers finding it, the, the rover itself wouldn't find it there because of the one way that it's studying it specifically. So we need the next time we send a rover up, we're going to add some more tools and gadgets and mm. gizmos in order to be able to test in a specific way that can break open rocks, that can drill in different ways, that can drill deep into the ground in order to reach levels where we believe that there may be methane production. Um, all the different things that we know we can test on Earth, we're going to add to the next set of robots that are going up there. And is there anything up there you can actually use? Obviously, if you can find water, fine. But, you know, it'll be on the poles and frozen. Well, I mean, what we're starting to see from a lot of the, the most recent results um, is that it's not just on the poles. Uh, a lot of big acronyms have been thrown around for the last few months about recurring slope lineae, um, which is essentially these dark patches that appear seasonally on Mars that we're pretty... that NASA's almost certain is... It's water that's got perchlorate salts in it. So we know there's very high probability that there's water much further away from the poles, um, and it's about mm -hmm. testing that and sending, sending rovers and sending things. The issue with the rovers that we've got is that in order for them to go to those areas where we think that there might be water, they haven't been necessarily decontaminated by bugs here on Earth enough to risk going to those particular areas. So again, the next generation will probably be better set up to be able to test mm. for life and test for water. Has anyone done the maths to find out whether you can take enough with you and grow enough while you're there to survive? Yeah, yeah. a lot of people that are working on that right now. <laughs> There's actually an MIT report that gets thrown at Mars One on a fairly regular basis saying that we're all gonna die after 68 days uh, because of that. And what it doesn't take into account is the resources that we need to use on the surface, um, that we need to be able to recover water from the soil, to do all those sort of things. There's no way you're going to be able to send people to Mars without using the resources. It's like sending an army in somewhere and not using the resources in the place that it is and trying to travel, trying to move everything there. It just doesn't work. What so. can you use? So we've got uh, things like, we've got hydrates, uh, which are, it's water molecules locked away in different minerals. Um, there's no shortage of iron. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, one of the big things is using the landscape itself as a way to have a habitat is building your habitat in the lava tubes that already exist so that you don't have to bring in more material. You can have the natural shielding or the radiation shielding properties of the rock that already exists there. So you don't have to build a habitat or dome or whatever style you want, ice house, whatever, on the surface, you build it subsurface, and then that takes away a ton of your material just right there, is using the features that already exist. What if you get sick? What did you do in your what year? You get sick did anyone Earth? get sick? <laughs> um, no, we were actually, because we were quarantined essentially from the normal human population, we didn't get sick because we didn't have any introduction of viruses or extra bacteria to our system while we were there. So no one got sick while we were there. And no one sprained an ankle or broke a tooth? Um, we had like, we had a person twist her knee and other than that, we didn't have any injuries. So there were, we were lucky that we didn't break a leg or do anything else, but I mean, you can get hurt falling down the stairs. Who's to say you're not gonna break a leg doing that versus stepping outside? So I mean, knock on wood, we didn't get hurt, but you could get hurt walking across the street here too. Yeah. But on Mars, what would you do, Josh? I was about to say, we've had quite a few discussions about I was involved with a team in Israel and uh, the Northern Hemisphere summer last year where we talked about the medical implications of someone getting sick. And it's not something that 
the general civilian population is particularly comfortable with, but in military circles, you start talking about mission-oriented medicine, um, where you turn around and say, are we risking the success of the mission for the life of an individual, um, where what you're involved with it becomes bigger than you as an individual, do you, and you start making medical decisions based on that. And it's a form of triage that a lot of people are really uncomfortable with, but if this is what you're signing up for, if this is what you're involved with, that's the kind of risks that you need to accept. As a military man, you understand that? Yeah, there's a level of familiarity with it where you sort of realise that you, you're involved with something that's much bigger than yourself, um, and that means making decisions that are in the best interests of, of what you're trying to achieve and the people around you rather than the individual. You also have the difference between medical and trauma. So if you're medically sick and you got... A virus, I don't know how you're going to get one going to Mars, but um, if you, for some reason, picked up something when you're there, then you have a whole separate bag of issues to deal with versus if you break your leg doing something else, at which point you could probably 3D print something to deal with it. You'll have a whole surplus of, you know, training beforehand in order to deal with that. And it's just like being anywhere else that's really remote. You're going to have to deal with it at the time, and you're going to have to come up with a, a triage in order to deal with it. And lives there are on the line. Antarctica is a really great yeah. example for a whole raft of different things related to Mars. And mm. we've seen examples with people down in Antarctica who've had to do surgery on themselves to remove like a burst appendix because they are the doctor for the base and they're the only one who knows how to do it. Um, and so they're performing surgery on themselves. Um, so it's more like that than anything else. One of the good things about Antarctica that you mentioned just now is that... Uh, there was a tremendous good spirit, camaraderie amongst everybody, irrespective of nationality. Who will go to Mars? You're Australian, you're American. What range of other people? People from Israel, people so from in, Palestine, people from Iran? I mean, in Mars One's case, we had both Israeli and Palestinian candidates. Um, they're no longer part of the program, not because of their nationality, but because they weren't the right candidates, they didn't have the right personality balance. Um, but we have... We have an, an amazing guy from Egypt. Uh, we have another candidate from Nigeria. Um, there are folks from literally anywhere in the world. The big thing that Mars One has said, and the reason why I could sign up to become a national candidate, is because they didn't care what your nationality was, provided you were over 18, fit and healthy, you had the right personality balance, and wanted to go to Mars, um, you'd be given the opportunity regardless of nationality. It's quite interesting there's a synchrotron about to open in Jordan, which is run by all of the nationalities in that area. I spoke to a professor from Israel and a physicist, a young woman from Egypt, and they have a complete range of those nationalities. Normally, you wouldn't see them in the same room, but when they're doing science, it's no problem. There has not been a ripple of discontent. Do you have that impression that that's going to be the same on Mars? Yeah, I mean, I we had an international crew at High Seas. It was, I mean, not very diverse. We had four Americans and two Europeans. So, we, I mean, we could have done better, but we, you deal with what you have. Um, and, I mean, we did have some cultural differences at first. We realized that Americans talk a whole heck of a lot and they don't ever listen. <laughs> and the Europeans were, like, sitting at the dinner table not saying anything. We're like, why aren't you guys talking? And there's, well, you guys never shut up. And so, you know, we had to learn, oh, you know, you're right. And because no one ever told us before. So, um, I mean, we dealt with that. But other than that, besides the fact that, you know, other people speaking different languages and we all had English as a common language, luckily, we didn't have really any issues. And I do believe that it's going to have to be in an international group of people that's on the crew as well as an international group of collaborators working together to make the mission successful and you know, we have so many smart people from all around the world. Why are we thinking just America, just Australia, just Russia or China, whoever you want to name, when we can start collaborating together, we'll all get on the metric system and then we can start working together. It was funny. There's, um, again, that view, that, that uh, Earthrise picture, there's a lot of discussion in psychology circles about how that actually changes the psychology of people who see Earth from above, where you don't see those borders, you don't see those same kind of boundaries that we draw between ourselves here on Earth, 
when you step back and see it from above, you realise that we actually have a lot in common. And you also hear stories from astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station where they have more issues with ground control and the political rubbish that goes on down here on Earth than what they deal with up there. If you need to borrow something, you go and check with the guys you know, that are just next door rather than asking permission to go through down through Earth. So rather than worrying about the politics, they just sort it out amongst themselves. And it could be a unifying force, you know, this great symbol of these people together on Mars. There's a big um, concept with, I mean, crews in general in this crew ground disconnect where at some point the crew is working together really well with mission support, mission control, whichever you have. And then at some point the crew becomes a bonded team and then all of a sudden it becomes, it's no longer that they're, you know, disagreeing with each other about anything. It's that it's now crew versus ground support. And the ground support's asking crew to do something and crew doesn't want to do it. So they say no. And, and then it's like, well, you know, this is your job. So you need to do it. And we're like, well, you haven't done this thing. And, and you know, it becomes a back and forth. And so removing that crew ground disconnect is a big issue. And that was one of the things we were studying at High Seas was what does the crew need to do for mission support? And what does mission support need to do for the crew? So you don't have that issue. So it's this flow of information both directions and everybody is content they're happy because we're doing our our work we're happy because they're taking care of the things that we need them to do on on earth and it doesn't become an international issue or anything else and it's all of everybody working together rather than focusing on any of the differences that anybody has and you think that will continue despite the turbulence politically here on earth i don't know if it will continue i think it's an, an amazing example so if you have four people from four different continents living together in a sustainable environment on the surface of Mars, it doesn't matter what your background is or what, you, what your family does or where you grew up or anything like that. The whole, I get asked why did I sign up in the first place. My vision for all of this is that kids that are born now in about 15 years time will get taken out into a park, have Mars pointed out into the sky and told people live up there and doesn't matter where you come from if you want to go and live there too or travel further you'll have the opportunity regardless of what your background is it shouldn't i i was told when i was seven that because i was born in australia i could never join nasa because nasa is a u.s government agency and they employ u.s citizens same way with esa they only employ european space agency member states as uh yeah, the citizens of those countries are the only people that can be employees of ESA. So to have someone come along and say, we don't care where you come from, if you want to go to space, you'll have that opportunity. I want that to be something that a generation of kids grow up with, um, regardless of where they're born. And you think that'll happen in 15 years' time? Well, it's certainly what we're aiming for. I think it's a very... Um, it's an enthusiastic attempt. Um, and... A lot of people have been talking about Mars in 20 years' time for the last 40 years um, by setting something that's aggressive. Um, if you slip by a year or two, at least you're pushing hard. At least you're not sort of pacing yourself for 20 years and then going, oh, we didn't quite get there. Um, you're doing something aggressive. You're making sort of achievable goals. And if you slip a little bit, it's less of an, less of an issue. And you'll hold yourself on standby for those 15 years? I've been holding myself on standby for four years already. Um, Got any kids? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's not on the to-do list either. So, um, yeah. But there are candidates that have kids. Uh, there are candidates that have, have just recently had kids. And I suppose there's, they have to make that decision themselves. They have oh. to ask the ethical question, am I going to be in a position where my child is 14, 15, and I'm going to have to wave goodbye to them and, and leave them forever. Um, is that a decision they can make? It's, that's not something I could do. Um, it's not that I don't like kids, I just don't want one of my own. Um, <laughs> not, yeah, I'm not here. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not something that is even a consideration for me, but for some other folks, that's a decision that they've made. Others have adult kids, and they know that the kids will be just fine in 15 years' time, um, make their own life decisions. But the really tough ones are the ones who are decided to have families now. And Carmel, you've done the experiment. Are you actually going to be a candidate? 
Uh, I'm not a candidate right now. I w yeah, I was just a human test subject for psychological testing, essentially. So would uh, you go? Uh, I would go if all the different pieces were in place. If it was tomorrow, no way, because, you know, that's a death wish. But if in 15, however many years, you know, the pieces are in place, we've gotten off Earth successfully, we've gone through space and figured out how to do radiation shielding, we've figured out how to land a rocket on Mars safely and not kill everybody on board, then the odds are better that people would survive in the first place. So um, I would consider it at that point, yeah. <laughs> and what are you going to do from now on in that regard? Uh, more experiments? Um, so I cannot do any more of the high seas experiments just because they already know everything about me, so they want fresh blood to be able to figure out more things about human interaction. But I guess I, right now I'm still looking for exactly what my avenue is going to be because I would like to continue helping future astronauts and or space exploration in any capacity that I can. So finding exactly how that is is kind of difficult following living in isolation for a year. <laughs> and if they said, we want you to do it again, would your heart drop? If they said they wanted me to go back into the dome for a year, I'd do it. Because that is the only way to find out that kind of information is to do it. And it's just, I mean, it is an absurd amount of information. We took 3,000, over 3,000 surveys apiece. They have 366 days of data on us coming and going and doing everything under the sun. They have billions of emails, I'm sure. And there's no way to amass that amount of data and to be able to sift through that in any other way. So I would definitely do it in a heartbeat. Well, let's test that uh, before I ask the first <laughs> questions from you. How many people here in the audience would actually go on a one-way trip to Mars? <laughs> There's a few. <laughs> One, two, three. There's a few out there, four too. Four out of how many hundred? <laughs> the t and, and I can see Robert over there, who's age nine. You would go to Mars? And he's nodding. Blimey. <laughs> so it's a very, very small minority. Are you surprised by that? Uh, not really, because it is a, a very specific thing to do with your life, and it requires you to give up a lot of... It, it requires you to give up absolutely everything about Earth to be able to do that. And it, th that, I mean, for me, it shows that there's enough people willing to stay on Earth to support those people that want to go to space, so that's good. Um, but you need somebody to go, and I think both Josh and I agree that it doesn't have to be us that's no, the first person not. that goes. We just want somebody to go. So, it do, I mean, sure, throw your hat in the ring, and that sounds awesome, and do everything you can to get there. But if I'm perfectly content with doing whatever I can here on Earth to support Josh or to support whoever wants to be that person, maybe it's one of you guys. That'd be great. Um, whoever it is, it doesn't matter to me as long as somebody goes. Okay, questions. There is a microphone in the middle. Put your hands up. No soliloquies. Just nice, short, sharp questions behind you, one there. Um, I believe there is a treaty in place that prohibits contaminating other planets. Won't that be a obstacle to colonizing Mars? Do you want to ignore yeah. that? So there's, there is the Outer Space Treaty from 1967, which dictates whether or not you can lay claim to land. Um, as part of that, through the United Nations, you also have the COSPAR panel, which controls the contamination of other, other planets, and as well as the back contamination. So what we were talking about before with the rovers not being able to go to those particular sites is because they've been contaminated, they, they have been decontaminated to a certain specification, but not to a sufficient certification under COSPAR to go and do that. So there are parts of Mars that we can land on with humans where the risk of contamination is actually quite low. Um, we're not threatening those special regions. If we were to try and land humans in somewhere like Valles Marineras where there's canyons and there could be, again, this, this sort of running water type situation, uh, then we'd have an issue. So it, it really comes down to the specific sites. It's not about contaminating Mars uh, overall. There's a lot of arguments from different folks that suggest that we're actually already contaminating Earth and Mars because we have the meteorites that we find in Antarctica that we know have come from Mars and we know that material has gone backwards and forwards. It's just about how much and where that lands that's the concern. Yes, please. There's been some discussion that we're at two minutes to midnight in the case of a nuclear holocaust. 
or if there was the event of a solar cloud or a meteorite coming towards the world, how long have we got to assemble a team to leave? Took a dark turn. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guy signing up to go one way to Mars and die on a cold red planet, and you took it grim. That's fine. Well, given that the <laughs> increase of the population on Earth is 90 million a year, we'd have to send an awful lot of rockets up to <laughs> escape. I know we? Elon Musk is talking about trying to get a million people on Mars in the next hundred years. Yeah. Is that? Uh, 2117? Yeah, 21, next 50 yeah. years or so. It really comes, I think it comes down to risk. How much yeah. risk are you willing to accept? Um, we talked about it the other night, but the guys who landed on the moon had a 50-50 chance of not coming back. Um, and they took that risk knowing it. Um, how much risk are you willing to accept to go? But I don't know. Yeah, um, I don't know the numbers on how how quickly we could get off this planet. I mean, theoretically, you could probably put together whatever you have at SpaceX right now and send somebody on it and see if it works. But I don't know that that's going to be a really great plan. So It's uh, not an escape zone. Yes, please. That's a great question for, for Elon Musk. Yeah. To Josh, uh, what sort of personality type have you been assessed with? And if you have a sense of humour, which you seem to, what type of humour is the acceptable humour to all the four members that are going to be selected? I think people get sensitive when you start talk, joking about eating each other. Um, <laughs> that tends to be... Then again, people have... Yeah, they've been candidates who've gone, yeah, I'd, I'd like to go with him primarily because I think he's, he looks like he's edible. Um, You're pretty small. I mean, yeah, there's not a lot here. Like, I could sort of eat a lot more and provide... No. Um, <laughs> What they're really looking for, and this is, again, something we've talked about quite a bit, they're ultimately look... Who here is a fan of uh, Richard Dean Anderson in MacGyver? Okay, we got one. Yeah? Come on, come on. Sheer, surely. Who's familiar with MacGyver, at least, and that okay. luscious hair? They kind of want to send four MacGyvers that are good housemates, like people who get along with each other, they don't stress out in a high-risk situation, they look at the problem, they look at the resources that are available and they work out how much time they have to solve a problem and they do it. Um, they've kind of talked about five different attributes, things like resilience, adaptability, resourcefulness, uh, the ability to trust and being curious. But ultimately, it's about knowing yourself. That's kind of, and that's where the humour comes in as well. If you know your sense of humour, you can adapt it to other people. And how do you go with various differences between you? If someone's a vegan, <laughs> someone's a carnivore, uh, someone wants to pray three times a day, someone else doesn't. Do as you like. I yeah. mean, I don't think praying three times a day is going to harm anybody, nor is what you eat for food. I think if you're an herbivore instead of a carnivore, that probably helps everybody relieve the idea of cannibalism so um yeah so to speak about the character traits that people are looking for um one of the things is that when you go to mars you're going to have a 20 minute delay one way for getting a message to earth to say that there's a, if there's an issue and then getting a, a response back let alone composing that response which is a big time consumer as well and so you're going to need people that not only MacGyvers, but they can they can deal with an issue on the, the spot. They're not going to have to say, oh, actually, we have an issue with this. Please t advise us how we should fix this. 40 minutes, round trip. Oh, okay, we should turn off the water. Like, no, you're going to turn off the water first, then you can, you know, solve the problem as it goes. You need people that can deal with issues aut autonomously and do not need to be instructed every step of the way. They can follow instructions and they can do as they're told when that is appropriate, but the, if there's a situation that happens, they need to be able to act on the spot and get stuff done right away. One here and then there. Oh, I've got one over here. Oh, fine, oh. okay. <laughs> uh, Elon Musk has been mentioned once or twice, um, and I can't blame you. Um, I'm just wondering what you think of his uh, interplanetary transport system and how that might tie into things in the future. That's you. That's me, apparently. <laughs> um, I love, I love ITS. I was in Guadalajara in Mexico when he made that announcement. I watched it from the room and it was an extraordinary experience. He is an incredible showman. Um, 
who is proposing something that is ludicrous, but then again, so is launching humans to another planet on a return rocket ship. Um, we are talking about, we're talking about the future. We live in a future now where we have the Library of Alexander in our pocket that you can pull up in a heartbeat. So you have to come up with these amazing, incredible ideas. SpaceX has a history of setting particular dates that are then not met. Um, but again, it's that same thing of they, they try and achieve the impossible. And if you achieve the impossible a few years later, you still achieve the impossible. So I think the interplanetary transport system is extraordinary. I would buy a ticket in a heartbeat. Um, I've been asked that question before where people go, if you were offered a ride to Mars with Elon Musk tomorrow, and same thing, if the systems were in place, if everything was available and ready to go, would you take it? I'm not that much of a Mars One stalwart that I wouldn't turn down a trip to Mars. Um, and I think ITS is an amazing architecture. There's a lot of things that are available. There's so much more technology that needs to be developed in that. You look at these models and they go, that's extraordinary. Where's the life support system that goes in it? Where is the thermal control system that goes in it? There, where's, there is so much to keeping humans alive for 80 days that it will take to get to Mars with ITS. They have the rocket and they have the architecture. They need to humanise it so that people can actually live comfortably inside it. To come, um, regarding to the live stream you did yesterday, how do you think the thing like that you do with the lava tubes to make the plants grow, how would you like find where they are? Okay, so she's talking about, we did a live stream with a bunch of kids um, yesterday and we had a design contest where we had to design a Mars habitat. Carmel one. Okay. Yeah. So That's my cool. design had um, a skylight, which is the a view into a lava tube and the habitat was built in the lava tube and the skylight, the idea was that you could enclose that with some kind of transparent, maybe um, whatever you want to choose, um, transparent device that would allow light to come in and have an arborarium or area where you could grow all your plants in there so you don't have to add the extra resources of generating light with, the, um, with plant lights. So the way you might find them is that you can use satellite images and you could even do this here on Earth where you take you look at Google Earth, especially in Hawaii, which is really cool, and you can zoom in and see a whole chain of skylights. And between that chain is a lava tube. So you know that between how much distance, maybe it's a kilometer between lava tubes and skylights, you might have a chain there that you could build up a whole um, system of habitats in that line, and then you'd have your skylights to come and go out of on the other side. So you can use satellite imagery, or you can just go explore on land. On, on foot, yeah. How do you store your food in Mars? How do you store your food? How do you store it? You store food. So a lot of the food that we send to space, especially when it goes to the space station, has to be specially made. So you can't just send bread up. If you, uh, I think it was Apollo 6 or 7, one of the astronauts managed to smuggle in a corned beef sandwich that they took on board. It might have been Gemini. They took it on board and they tried to eat it, and they'd been keeping this thing for like three days yeah. or something. It was gross. They tried to eat it, and all the crumbs went everywhere throughout all of it, and they had a really dangerous situation because of the, all these crumbs. So you have to have food that doesn't turn into crumbs. Um, you, can't have, you can't have bubbly fizzy drinks because all the carbon dioxide out of it just goes crazy, doesn't know which way is up, well, yeah, and, it and you drink it as well. And that gets really painful. So all the food that you would take to Mars has to be specially stabilised. Um, it has to be able to be stored for a really long time without being refrigerated. Um, chances are the food that we would probably take, it's only being taken as reserve. So as soon as we get to Mars, we want to grow our own food as quickly as possible. Um, you were talking about going vegan or t talking about veganism before. We'd probably have to all go vegan. We all have to eat green food all the time which sucks for me because I love bacon. Um, but, but you can make bacon. We can grow seaweed, which tastes... A Japanese seaweed called dulse tastes just like bacon when you fry it. And you can have baked mealworms. So we can... Less make appealing. Ba literally, <laughs> bacon mealworms. Very so, good question, you yeah, two. Uh, yeah. by, by the way, 
just nod or shake your head. Would you like to go to Mars? Depends. Yes or no? <laughs> They're not certain. <laughs> Whether about seven or eight? How old are you? You're ten. <laughs> and eight. Yeah, they're uncertain, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Next question over here. Okay, so we're talking about the nitty-gritty stuff. Um, has anyone done any research or studies about giving childbirth uh, on Mars? Oh, yeah, 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 I always get this one. <laughs> <laughs> so we currently have two data points. Uh, we have how well humans reproduce in 1G of gravity, which according to this field right now is fairly effective. Um, we know how to breed on, on Earth. We know from experiments on the International Space Station that things like fertilization and embryo development in rats doesn't necessarily develop properly because our reproductive system needs to know which way is up and down so that it can put the arms and the legs and things in the right places. So we've seen issues with uh, conception, we've seen issues with embryo development on the International Space Station, where it's one, it's zero g of gravity. Mars is in between, so at 38% of Earth's gravity, um, you weigh a, a little bit more than one third of what you weigh here. Is that enough up down for our reproductive system to know which way is up and down? Do you have issues with development, all that sort of stuff? There's no real way of testing that unless you go and start breeding animals and then try and breed humans on Mars. Josh, have any humans ever done it in space? I don't think any of them would admit it. Uh, okay, I, so I talk about this in my comedy shows reasonably regularly. Um, <laughs> there are certain biological issues that make it very difficult, very, very, in the, you get, as soon as you get into space, we have a huge amount of fluids that are stored in our legs. Under zero gravity, all of that shifts upwards. So for the first few days or so, all the creases, all the wrinkles, lots of stuff come out of your face. You sort of get larger chests, all of this stuff. Space is looking pretty sexy for the first few days. And then you pee it all out and look like Mr. Burns afterwards. <laughs> um, that fluid loss means that particularly for the men, there's certain hydraulic issues uh, that make that very difficult. Um, I don't, no one Aside has ever... from like the gravity issue? That's the other, like, yeah, like, again, there's kids around, I don't want to go into details, yeah. but like, you could find solutions to all of these things. Well, no don't one's know. tested it yet. Right. You can't even don't see Don't ask me to experiment, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sending you back that data. <laughs> Who's next? Yes, please. Um, just wondering, with uh, technology being very vital uh, with any space-type trip, um, what technologies do you see as the most important going forward, uh, whether it be something like quantum computing, uh, fuel and energy, solar winds, artificial intelligence, um, that you see that are important for the future? I'd say as far as Mars is concerned, the technology of obviously getting there, that's a whole bag of issues that you, I think you're going to talk about. But once we get there, um, I think really like just even recognizing that there are certain things that only humans can do. And we can send robots and rovers and satellites and you name it to Mars to study the planet. But there are certain places that only we are going to be able to get to for a certain amount of time. We might be able, well... Drones are a whole separate issue and gravity and force and thrust, but whatever. Um, I mean, y there is a really great argument for humans going specifically because the technology for certain things doesn't exist right now for us to explore these certain areas. So um, you can talk about that. I mean, the biggest challenge that we've reasonably got on Mars, there's two really large challenges that we've got to contend with. One is entry, descent, and landing. So the biggest thing that we've landed on Mars so far is a Curiosity rover. Um, so those landing technologies to be able to get things on the surface of Mars that weigh more than one tonne is probably the biggest challenge. And going back to ITS that we were talking about before, that's talking about landing an extraordinarily large rocket using a different approach, using what we call retro rocket propulsion, as opposed to what has been used by things like uh, Curiosity used the sky crane, trying to slow itself down with a heat shield and then having this thing pop out where it flew around and then lowered the rover down on a crane. Um, 
very challenging to try and achieve something like that. So trying to land heavy things on Mars is probably the biggest barrier that we've got. Um, SpaceX think that they've probably got the solutions to that, and from what we're seeing, landing rockets on barges, it looks like they probably do. Um, that's in one, one G, though. That's in one G, so it changes the whole game again. Yeah. The other issue that we've realistically got is energy. Um, it's not the thing that you immediately think of, but Mars is half the distance away from the sun again from where Earth is. Um, and so you're getting less solar, in, solar insulation, you're getting less sort of energy on Mars generally. It's part of the reason why it's so much colder. So solar panels don't work as well as they would on Earth. Um, the idea of launching a nuclear reactor and trying to land that on the surface of Mars doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs either. Um, so you start to ask the questions. There's been a lot of discussion about is there geothermal energy yep. on Mars as well. So trying to get energy for us to be able to run life support systems, to be able to process the soil so that we can get water out of it, all of these things come back to energy. So in terms of the efficiency of solar cells is probably going to be one of the key improvements um, that will make a lot of this more efficient. The other one is having solar cells that you can roll up. Um, if we can roll it up into a, a small little object rather than these huge flat solar panels, it means that we can put them inside, um, put them inside manifolds, we can launch them, we can do all of these things and then roll them out on the surface of Mars. So people are doing that, but making them more efficient is the big challenge. One last question. Hi. I'm just wondering if, if there's a plan in place for if multiple groups or corporations or bodies end up making it to Mars in time, um, you know, is there likely to be power plays or territorial disputes or we were here first or all that crap that goes on on Earth, um, political power plays and all of that, what would happen or is there a plan in place already for how you would actually deal with that? Yeah, so right now there is a large group of countries, organizations that are working together to figure out what the laws are of going to space and specifically going to Mars. Who, right now, no one owns Mars. There aren't any countries that have a claim to Mars. And so specifically in Adelaide, there's a large group of people that are working on figuring out, you know, do we treat Mars like we do Antarctica, where every country can work together, we can go there, we can research but no one is allowed to destroy it. No one is allowed to lay claim to it because it is no one's. It's protected by you know, a larger image, a larger law that says we are all here together to work together, not to destroy it. I mean, we've yeah. got one of them in the third row um, who's yeah. specifically interested in the cultural aspects of things, but people asking those really difficult questions about how do we interact, what laws apply. Um, we have the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 that, again, dictates you can't own specific land, but does that mean that we can't work together? Like, we've got great examples of working together on in Antarctica. Again, the International Space Station is a great example of international cooperation. Um, there's all these aspects, but it has to be... It has to be holistic. It needs to be a full approach. It can't just be engineers talking to engineers, scientists talking to scientists. It needs to be everybody, lawyers, artists, all these different folks from all these different backgrounds who need to ask the question, who are we when we go to another planet? Um, how do we identify ourselves as a species when we go and start hopefully working together? Do we go yeah. as different factions or do we go as one species? One final quick question from me. Is there an argument for having the moon as a base before you go off? I know you've heard it a thousand times before, or is it better just to go straight to Mars? I'll let I, you I, answer that first. I think anybody <laughs> can make an argument for either way. Um, I, there's, there are lots of benefits to it. There's also a few drawbacks to it. Um, one of the benefits is that you can use a different kind of engine to get off of Earth, because getting off of Earth is kind of one of the biggest hurdles of getting into space in general, because our gravity is I mean, it's a weak force because we can leave gravity, but then at the same time, it's still a very powerful force. So getting the, the moon means that then you have a, a, a much easier time of using a different kind of engine to get to Mars. You can also stockpile resources. You can mine resources there to, cr to create fuel so that you're cutting that chain of always sending things from Earth because it's extremely expensive to send things from Earth. So if you can put that burden somewhere else rather than always trying to take things off Earth, use the resources where you're at and then go from there is a, is a great consideration. Splendid. Yeah. You have an answer? I mean, 
<laughs> a lot of folks here will probably be familiar with an old television advert where there's there's Mexican people arguing between like soft and hard tacos and the little girl turns around and goes, poke non los dos, like why not both? Um, why not both? Why do we have to choose between Earth, like between the moon and Mars? Why? It's great that we've got folks like Jeff Bezos trying to get and create a lunar economy. We've got Elon Musk trying to get us to Mars. Um, I don't like the idea that we should be choosing. I like the idea that it fits into a larger narrative that Moon supports Mars, um, but people should still be trying to get to Mars at the same time. It's all part of this idea of us leaving Earth. I'm going to wrap now, but don't rush away. There's one more thing going to happen. But in the meantime, would you please thank Josh Richards and Carmel Johnston. Thank you. Thank you.